Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, singer-songwriter Billy Bragg. Take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind, down the foggy ruins of time, far past the frozen leaves, the haunted, frightened trees, out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands, with all memory and fate driven deep beneath the waves. Let me forget about today until tomorrow. Hmm. I feel like we should just let that hang in the air. Yeah. Well, it's either going to be that or knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. I couldn't quite work out which one I wanted to do, so I, t- I plumped for tambourine. And when did you first hear tambourine? Oh, this is uh, going right back to the very beginning of becoming aware of Bob Dylan. 1972, I, I got a Saturday job in a hardware store in Barking, where I grew up, which had a, in the basement, had a, a, a record shop. The old man ran the hardware store and his son had opened a record shop in the, in the I suppose in the late 60s. It was the big record shop in, in Barking, Guy Norris it was called, on Barking Station. It was one of three branches he had in the area. And on my lunch times, I would go down to the record department and have my sticky bun and cup of tea in one of the listening booths. And the hip guys with their cheesecloth shirts and their long hair and their thin uh, moustaches would put on a record for me. They wouldn't tell me what they were going to put on. They would put on a record for me to have a listen to. And they kind of knew what I was into, which is basically Simon and Garfunkel and Slade mm. and, and Motown. And one day they put on the, the original Bob Dylan Greatest Hits album, the one with the, the he's holding the red book on the cover. And that really just blew my little mind, really. I suppose I was 14, maybe 13, 14. And I've, I was already obsessed with um, Simon and Garfunkel, and I'd been taping their albums. I didn't have a record player, a reel-to-reel tape machine when I was 12, and I'd taped... More or less their complete work, Simon and Garfunkel, from my friend's elder sister's record collections. Because mm. any sentient 15 or 16-year-old schoolgirl in those days with a bit of a... It was slightly bookish, had a soft spot for Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. So um, I'd got all those, and I'd got Motown Chartbusters volumes 3 to 6 or 7. On tape, and that was that was kind of like the the core of my my sort of musical being. But then when I got this job in a record store, they turned me on to uh, to Bob Dylan, early Bob Dylan. So my way in was through that first greatest hits album. That was my entree, and Tambourine Man is the, I would argue is the standout track on that mm-hmm. compilation. Did you come across the Birds version around? I was familiar time? with the Birds version. Yeah. I was familiar. I mean, you know, if anybody who listens to music in the Late sixties, early seventies. You're listening. You're hearing Bob Dylan by osmosis. Mm. You know, mm, everybody's yeah. covering his stuff. It's a bit like Woody Guthrie. Mm. You know, you don't have to know Woody's stuff to know his stuff because everyone's covered it. Yeah. If you're into singer songwriters, which I was big time, uh, as a result of getting through the portal of Simon and Garfunkel to Bob Dylan, and then into all the other great 60s singer-songwriters. Mm. Where, where did you go uh, after that as far as Bob? <clears throat> did you go back to the beginning right away? No, or? no, no. Um, the next really big uh, Bob moment I had was when 
Graham Patton, who was in my class, wanted to give his sister for her birthday a copy of the Jackson 5's Greatest Hits, which I had a copy of. And he offered to swap it with me for his dad's copy of The Times They Are Changing. So we made that swap. And the first thing I realised about this copy of The Times They Were Changing was it was a 60s original because the vinyl was about as thick as this table. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like the, the, the skinny, thin, crisp packet vinyl that you got in the 70s. Mm. It was, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't flex it really. Yeah. <clears throat> and I took that home and I put it on. And I think, I, looking back now, I didn't realise it at the time, but I think... My response to it was very similar to the previous generation's response to when the first time they heard Robert Johnson mm. or mm. Lead Belly or those raw blues guys who were really at the, you know, absolute basic human emotions. And I, and, and I just picked up on, on every, every track on the album. Uh, and it still, to me, is the, is the, the core of the, Bob, of the Bob Dylan that I responded to that early uh, angry political bob dylan because that, that's interesting because he talks in chronicles about hearing robert johnson yeah for the first time and yeah. how that changed his life same sort of thing and i think it was the rawness of it having having grown up listening to uh you know beautifully produced 70s pop to hear something as as visceral as uh, as the tracks on that album the picture of him on the cover the black and white picture of him on the cover as well and the uh, the poem on the back, uh, you know, that uh, whole of Canada on fire, I think it says, and no one knows anything except who's holding the matches. Mm. And, you know, every time I see another news story about Brexit, I think about that. Yeah. I think about what he said. That's mm. all that people are interested in, who's holding the matches. Yeah. And did you, when you when you saw the, that sort of haggard face of Dylan on the cover of The Times They Were Changing and you heard... North Country Blues. Did, were you aware of, of this other guy, Woody Guthrie, at all? No, 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 no. No, no so, I, I mean, you've got to understand, I'm hearing Bob in isolation. I don't have an older brother or sister. <clears throat> I don't... Uh, Dylan's not visible in our culture mm. at the time. This is 72, 73, mm. so he's not really properly kind of come back. I think the, mm. the, the shop sold a poster of him that I think was a picture of him on the mic at what I finally realised was... The concept of Bangladesh. He's wearing yeah. a jean jacket. He's yeah. got a microphone yeah. holder on, the uh, harmonica mm-hmm. holder on, and he's there. That was a big poster that was in the record shop that, where the record shop sold. Um, and nobody in my class was into Bob Dylan, so I was kind of, and he wasn't on the radio, so I was a bit isolated until Barking Public Library got a copy of Anthony Scaduto's biography, the first probably a first rock and roll biography, probably mm-hmm. proper rock biography that wasn't an exploitation. I devoured that. Mm. I absolutely devoured that book. And that's how I found out about Woody. That's <laughs> how I found out about Woody Guthrie. So the only Woody Guthrie record I could find in uh, Barking in 1972, 1973, because I didn't have any in Guy Norris, I found it in a shop we used to call Cheap Jacks, which was like a, like, I suppose, like a pound shop now what you call a pound shop. Um, my mum used to shop there, but they had cassettes. And among the cassettes, they had a French uh, cassette, Chant du Monde label, which I now know, looking back, is the was the Dust Bowl Ballads. But all it said on the front was Woody Guthrie. Spelled his name wrong. Mm. W-O-O-D-I-E. <laughs> <laughs> Guthrie. That's cute, yeah. It listed the tracks. 
but it didn't have any other details whatsoever. And I can remember taking it home and playing it and thinking, no, I'm sorry, this is just too raw. I can't, mm. I can't, I don't get this. I really don't get it. And it took me a while to, to understand a little bit more. You know, it probably took punk to get me to really understand it. But, uh, what happened next with regard to Bob after reading Scaduto's book was I got volume two of Greatest Hits and that introduced me into post-protest Bob mm. Dylan, a mm. completely different Bob Dylan that was really messing with my head. And as a kind of nascent songwriter, I took a lot of cues from that, more from that second album really than the first album. It's a hell of a mixed bag as well, isn't it? It is. You've got, it's all over you know, the place. Um, I think the Mighty Quinn's on it and Mighty Quinn's going to fall. Uh, it, I tell you watching what, the River Flow. Yeah, yeah. Watching the River Flow, which <clears throat> opens it. wasn't the greatest hit at all. No, it no, it's a great song. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. Yes. And it's got that really sparse version of You Ain't Going Nowhere. Yes. So it's kind of... Yeah. It's, I mean, to me... Um, Stuck inside of Moby with the Memphis Blues again. I'd never heard a song like that that just went on and on and didn't seem to have a middle eight or a chorus or just mm-hmm. <laughs> relentlessly unfolding mm-hmm. in front of me. Um, you know, that really messed with my songwriting because I kind of worked out how Smokey Robinson wrote songs and I kind of worked out how Paul Simon put a song together. But Bob Dylan was just like, I'm not going to keep, I'm not keeping up with this guy. <laughs> but did you go back and then try to write Bob Dylan protest songs? I kind of write, I kind of got into the idea of protest songs and the idea of the protest singer. And I was drawn to those singer-songwriters that had something to say. But I also recognised that Dylan had kind of gone off somewhere else, that he was mm. not... He was kind of like of that sort of genre. In fact, he, he was the defining songwriter of that genre, but he departed and gone somewhere else. So, you know, um, I didn't I didn't really manage to find the songwriters that I really love now. Phil Oaks, I never heard him until I went to America. Phil, he just didn't have any profile mm. when I was growing up. Uh, Tim Harding. You know, he would come across th- these guys... Like Harding or Fred Neal when they were covered by Rod Stewart or someone like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, George Stewart, yeah. Rod Stewart always had a Dylan song on his record. Yeah. yeah, that gave me a lot of cred with the with the Rod Stewart fans, yeah. which yeah. I was one. Like uh, you know, uh, one too many mornings. Yeah, uh, um, did uh, only hobo, I think. Yeah, uh, Mama, you've been on my mind. He did That's a beautiful right. version of, I would say, definitive version of yeah. Mama, you've been on my mind with a with yeah. an accordion. Really lovely. Yeah. Um, so. Being a Rod Stewart fan as well, which I was, I learned to play guitar when I was 16 via the Rod Stewart songbook at the kid next door, Wiggy, who was two years younger than me. He was a huge Faces fan, and he kind of taught me the rudiments. And so we would we would go to uh, uh, Shaftesbury Avenue, where there were three or four specialist music bookshops up little stairways and down little alleys you'd go in there and they would have a lot of Bob Dylan songbooks mm. and I was ever so pleased to find that almost every Bob Dylan song was CF and G7 because I could play those <laughs> there wasn't any with any minors in so I very quickly uh, managed to be able to play most of Greatest Hits Volume 1 Greatest Hits Volume 2 was a little bit more complicated but not that much complicated and I think that's the great thing about Dylan he's so accessible He's not throwing you curveballs, you know. He's he's laying out the table and saying, "Come and sit down and join in." And I mean, I was listening to your early um, stuff the other day, tr- trying to make sort of obvious connections, and there aren't really any obvious connections. But it occurred to me that you, the, your first album certainly reminded me in a kind of very difficult to specify way, but a sort of it reminded me of, of the acoustic sections of, of the Before the Flood album, but but done louder and more aggressive and punkier. Yeah, you know, and there was the similar kind of bite to it. Um, 
I would say it's more kind of a nexus of uh, times are changing mm-hmm. and Elvis sun sessions. Nice. I would say mm-hmm. it's more like that. It's trying to kind of like trying to have the depth of the times are changing, but the dynamic of the sun sessions, the stripped back dynamic of the yeah. sun sessions. Have you ever nicked anything directly from Bob and covered it up? Why cover it up? I mean, <laughs> I have a song called Ideology, uh, which is basically the Chimes of Freedom, and it even says in the chorus the sound of ideology clashing. I don't bother covering it up mm-hmm. to the extent that. Um, I was in America one time and a guy came up to me and said, you're never going to believe this, mate. You're never going to believe this. I went to see Bruce Springsteen the other night and he stole your song Ideology and he's calling it the Chimes of Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> the I nerve. Said, I put my arm around him and said, mate, I have to tell you something. <laughs> Sit down. I have to tell you something. Um, you know, from, from very early on, I was, you know, riffing off of Bob and trying to send a message to his fans, not not stealing from him but but showing to people that aren't that's where i'm coming from and it's something that i'm i I still do you know um i rewrote the lonesome death of hattie cowell as the lonesome death of rachel corey who was a a protester uh against uh, the israeli settlements Mm -hmm. um i had a song um come to me one night, the lyrics of a song come to me one night uh, while I was in a van driving through Spain, an overnight drive, and I was sitting in the van and I couldn't get my guitar and these words were coming and I was writing them down and I needed to put them into a tune so they would flow because at the moment they were just coming out. So I just wrote the entire song to the tune of Desolation Row. Mm -hmm. And when I got to a guitar to be able to write a tune to it, I just had to write a song that scanned the same way as Desolation Run. Yeah. But the song does begin at night, the baby brotherhood and the inner city crew, just so I can put in a reference. To, and I can, I have played it to the tune of Desolation Run. And my current set ends with a, a rewrite of Times Are Changing. Times called, Changing Back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's good because it catches people in because the mm. first three lines are the same as the original. Mm. Come gather around people wherever you roam. You know, the waters around us are grown. And soon we'll be drenched to the bone, for the climate is obviously changing. And the fool in the White House says no one's to blame for the times they are changing back. And people think, initially, that I'm just singing the times they are changing. They get, mm. And I sing the whole song, but the last verse is the same as the original verse, mm. you know. The, you know, the, 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 the last one now or later, but yeah. the first one now or later be last verse. Mm. I use that at the end as well. But it's a, those songs are a point of reference. And they say, I am of this tradition. I'm part of this thing, you know. Obviously, Bob's part of it. Woody's perhaps the beginning of it. Woody and Leadbelly, you know, they're the they're the big brass spike that the tradition goes back to. But Dylan is the great sort of propagator, mm. and because he's the first, really the the first proper protest singer. In many ways, he's he's absolved of whatever else he does. He's like Elvis or Lonnie Donegan. Yeah. They're the first. And whatever they did is what they did. They didn't have a template. They just did this thing that was new and hadn't been done before and exemplified it. And as a consequence, you can't then measure them against anybody else because there's no one before to measure them against. So, you know, you can take the other singer-songwriters and compare, you know, like people do, Phil Oakes to Dylan. You know, there's an argument to be made there about about Oakes being the most political songwriter of the 1960s. But you can't put Dylan in a box and say he does this because he's 
he transcends that, but not just through his actions, but because he was first and because he kind of, having made his mark and burst onto the scene in that way with his, with his protest songs, he then forged onwards, you know, in the same way that Elvis forged onwards and Donegan forged onwards. Now, we might not agree with what, what Dylan did or does now at the moment. You know, I went to see him in uh, Southampton... Mm-hmm. I think the last time he was over and he was playing all the lounge songs. Yeah. yeah. And I was sitting with a bunch of guys who I didn't know up in the gallery uh, and they were complaining miserably about what he wasn't singing. It was, I squinted my eyes, pretended it was Tom Waits. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, For it, was Wolf, if yeah. it was Tom Waits doing it, people would be queuing up around the block. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. because it's Dylan, because he's got that, you know. The first time I ever saw him was... He's one of those people I wasn't sure I should go and see. Like, I never went to see Simon and Garfunkel. Even when I had a chance, I didn't do it. Mm. I just didn't want to change my perception of them. I wanted to keep it as it was, as it originally was, so that I could get back to that place. And I went to see, against my better judgment, I went to this Hammersmith Odeon with uh, Chrissy Hind, uh, who at the time was dating the drummer in my band, and we all went. And, uh, and she totally spoiled the whole evening for me by going backstage beforehand... And coming and saying to me, you must come back and say hello to Bob afterwards. He'd love to meet you. So I spent the entire gig thinking to myself, what am I going to say to Bob Dylan that, is, that doesn't sound like, hello, Bob, I really like your records? Yeah, big fan. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I ran away. At the end. I, didn't, I didn't go. I ran out the, I ran out Amazon Fodian and there was a car on fire underneath the fire. But it was like, what the is going on? I ran away. But the great thing about it was I really learned something. Because as a, as a sort of solo singer-songwriter, kind of thing, you, you watch people, and I learned something really, he played Wiggle Wiggle with the yes. same intensity that he played all the, all the, the classic stuff. Yeah. And to me, he was daring those people down the front to walk out, he was daring them to walk out, and I thought, oh, that is so brilliant, mm. that is so brilliantly provocative, that you've not just gone into Vegas, that you're really determined to take these people on like you always were. So I came away with a huge respect for him, a huge respect for him. And uh, like I say, if I ever met him, I have no idea what I would say to him. That's, so, that's very, um, is it rolling, Bob? Because we try to reference Wiggle Wiggle. Seriously, yeah. I'm a great defender of yeah. Wiggle Wiggle. Because, it was brilliant. No, it was brilliant. Yeah. I just sat there grinning from <laughs> ear to ear when he did it. And he gave it the same intensity yeah. as he gave the other stuff. And I, I was just, and I, it taught me that you've got to challenge your audience's perceptions. You know, yeah. you can't just do exactly what they expect you to do. At what point, so I try and do that by singing songs like England Half English. Uh, you know, I've got a current song in in my set called Full English Brexit that mm. tries to express some empathy for those people who, who voted for Brexit because this is they don't feel it's like their country anymore. Yeah. I can remember what that feels like from the Thatcher days. Yeah. So you've got a challenge, you know, while mm. at the same time we all sing Power and Union at the end, mm. you've also on, the, on that journey got to have a wiggle wiggle in there. I'm a bit surprised that you that you actually haven't met Bob because, you you know, your paths have he must have crossed. He's mentioned you, obviously, in his book, in Chronicles. It's better than a knighthood, that, isn't it? People were ringing me up all week <laughs> like that. Oh, it's just yeah. so brilliant. How been, brilliant is that? But, uh, you, ever, show, uh, you know, it? he says something like, but those people probably weren't even born yeah. when, I, you know, when they went to Woody's <laughs> It's a great place. story, though. It's, it's a, a great, great story. story. It's, it's a, a great story. <laughs> I was born. I don't know if Jeff was, but it is a great story. I read that with... I mean, I just love that book. It's just so amazing. I mean, the bit where he goes to see... Is it Sandberg he goes to see? Um, uh, what do you mean about New Morning? The, the no, the, when, the, uh, the poet. Yeah, yeah, it's 
not Sandberg, it's uh, Christ, because he was a playwright. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, he we'll goes to see him yeah. and, and he asks him, who are your heroes? And he says, Robin Hood and St. George the Dragon Slayer. Oh, no, wait a minute, back up, back up, back up. I mean, I've just written a book about Englishness at the time, right? So yeah. I'm like, back up, back up, whoa, 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 whoa. Who? Yeah. In Duluth, a little Jewish-American kid, Robin Hood and St. George the Dragon Slayer. What is going on here? So, you know, I just... But the best bit in the book is where uh, where uh, uh, Robbie Robertson says to him, so where are you going to take it? Yeah. That oh, is just laugh out loud funny. You that. can just that, feel that, yeah. the atmosphere, yeah. can't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that is just so... Even you have drank the Kool-Aid. That's like... <laughs> And it's one of those things where you know he's not messing around. No. Like a lot of times you think, yeah. oh, come on, Bob, you're just making this up, really. But that is a moment that you totally believe. Yeah. And he just like, you know, and he goes home and he's like, what? <laughs> Even the guys who can see behind the curtain with me. Yeah. Yeah. Think I'm in charge. Yeah. Why are we going to take it? Yeah. But really it, it is surprising. If you, 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 you almost met him way back then. It's kind of have you have you had a chance to meet him again and again well, decided not weirdly, to weirdly the the first week of uh, recording Mermaid Avenue with Wilco yeah we were in Chicago mm-hmm. and Dylan was playing the Metro now, I don't know if you know Chicago Metro is a small club it's where I play opposite mm. uh, the Wrigley Field it's wow. a, like yeah. 600 standing so I managed to blag us all tickets because we all wanted to go and see him and the Wilcos were like, go backstage, go backstage, get him to come to the studio, tell him what we're doing, give him some. Yeah, right. yeah. I had to say to him, look, look, guys, <laughs> we're in the studio with Woody Guthrie, okay? Do you not think that's going to be tough enough to share? Because <laughs> yes. it's like the first or second day of recording. <laughs> Do you not think it's going to be hard enough Let's to contain <laughs> Woody Guthrie in the studio yeah. without inviting Bob, okay? I don't know him. And like, you know him, you know him. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I play that sort of music. I don't know, I know. And he was great. And he was doing this weird thing where he was swinging his leg like he was like like Elvis, swinging, you know, swinging his knee back and forth. And the Wilcos were like, wow, look at what he's doing. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, he's just trying to keep the blood flowing. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's like <laughs> that thing when it's like cold water pouring down, you're outside, you thought, I know what Bob's doing. But, Did you yeah. ever get any word from him what he thought of the whole Mermaid Avenue project? Because I've been wondering that for 20 years. No, no, just what's, just what's in Chronicles, really, is yeah. all. But um, he did play, uh, he played... Uh, he played, on his radio show, he played yeah, Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio on the baseball and show. Against mm. the law. Yeah, yeah. On the, on Which the is great, it's just show. the fact that yeah. he knows about it. Yeah, well, that's, he knows. That's totally cool. But also, I mean, I remember, you know, I think I heard, I guess I planted before I heard the whole album. It was on mm. some sort of giveaway with Q magazine or something. And I heard it and I thought... It's the basement tapes. It sounds well, the just base, like the basement, the basement tapes, tapes was a very important point of reference for Mermaid Avenue. Yeah, because I can remember we, you know, we. I mean, Jeff was very much into that whole idea. He yeah. bought. He, I don't think he played harmonica before. He bought a harmonica oh, really? and and played. You know, he worked out a play. I don't think he played it on record before. Anyway, mm. um, and making Mermaid Avenue was a little bit like going to the dressing up box every day. Who do we want to be today? Mm. You know, we could be. Let's be. Uh, you know, early Bob or Basement Tapes or Tom Waits we could be, let's be Cheap Trick, let's be, you know, The Clash. We can, you know, it's like a dressing up box. Mm. But I think the the real influence of uh, Basement Tapes comes in the sense that they're, they're playing all these old-timey songs. Predominantly, they're playing these old-timey songs. But you know by listening to it that the guys who are playing those old-timey songs have heard Little Richard. You know, they're not AP Carter. 
They've, they've been through some other fire. And our job, I felt, was to play these Woody songs like we'd heard The Clash or whatever. Yeah, you fantastic. Know, or or uh, The Basement Tapes, if you mm. will. So The Basement Tapes was kind of like a... It was, it was like not a map, but it was like an example of how you could take music that wasn't yours and old-time music and breathe some life into the material mm. by not being afraid of the material, by, by you know... Because those old songs, like Woody's lyrics, can be bent all out of shape and they still stand up. Yeah, because you know, you you, the, the Basement Tapes is ancient and modern at the same time, yeah, isn't it? And that's exactly it is. what you're that's, after. Yeah, exactly what we were trying to do with, yeah. with Mermaid Avenue. So in that sense, it was kind of like a like a like an example yeah. that we could aim at. Not to sound like the Basement Tapes, mm. but there's certainly, when we were in the studio, that, that whole idea mm. was a, a kind of comfort to us, that if we could pull this off... There's a there's a way there is a a, a method of doing this, and I, I'd like to feel that we you know we did right by the little guy, oh, we, yeah. as we refer to Woody, oh, yeah. um, and certainly by Nora, his, his daughter, who commissioned us to make the record to kind of reboot her father's mm. legacy. How did Nora find you in particular? Because she uh, took it to you originally. She saw me perform uh, in Central Park at a 90th birthday party for Woody, so that must be 1992. Uh, well, in which case it must have been an 80th birthday party for Woody mm. um, with Pete Seeger and uh, the Beatniks and Arlo I think yeah. and she kind of my understanding is that she'd asked around the usual suspects <laughs> because my first reaction to her was listen this, isn't my, this is Bob Dylan's job this is not my job mm. you know, I'm not even American but um, I think for that generation and those artists, the obvious artists that she asked, I just think they were a little bit too close to, to Woody. Mm. They'd grown up with him. They were, he was too, he loomed too large for them. They didn't want to tangle with him. Mm. Whereas for someone like me, because I I'm, you know, c- came to Woody through Bob, so I didn't come, I mean, all the people, the other people she asked probably come to Woody firsthand because they're that generation. I came to Woody through Bob. Um, and I saw Woody against the backdrop of 20th century American culture. I didn't see him as like, you know, the the guy on the pedestal. Mm. And Nora was so generous with the material. Yeah. She was so generous with the material uh, that, you know, there was uh, there was no worries because even if we messed it up with our a dozen songs, there's still another 3,000 lyrics in there. Someone else can have a go. It wasn't like the very mm. last few bits of paper that we were going to use up and that was it. So, you know, her generosity, her vision and uh, the application of me and the, the guys from Wilco who... You know, I knew the reason I knew it would work because I knew when I explained to Jeff Tweedy what we were doing that he would get it. But when did you decide to bring them on board? Well, because you had it all to yourself. I did have it all to myself, and I played some songs. I did a gig, a little gig here in London um, at the Twelve Bar up the road, and I decided to try some of these songs out. And I and I tried out. I think all you fascists bound to lose against the law, Mm -hmm. and talking to friends afterwards who were sort of fans who I knew, what did they think? They couldn't tell the difference between the Billy Bragg songs and the Woody songs. So I realised 
that I was choosing Billy Bragg songs, which is possible. We could go and make an album, you could choose your kind of songs, and you could choose your kind of songs. It's that much stuff in there. Well, only fascist is an obvious Billy Bragg. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but, so that's when I realised that in order to do what Nora wanted, I needed another sensibility. Mm -hmm. And Wilco's had just recorded uh, being there. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they can play all different styles. And I knew Jeff from doing shows with Uncle Tupelo. And they were playing in London. And I thought, if I can just explain this to Jeff, he will get it. He will understand it. He's enough of a fan of music to understand what a unique opportunity this is and it, as I say didn't take much convincing Was he a big fan of Woody's at that point? I think, I'm not sure if he was a big fan of Woody but I think the Dylan connection was uh, apparent to him mm-hmm. and you know the free hand to write any tunes we wanted and to record them in any way we wanted mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. Uh, all I can remember him saying to me about the whole project that was about the direction of it was he said to me at one point this is going to be weird right? I said, yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be the old weird America. That's where we're going to go. Mm. And he was like, great, I'll do it, we'll do it. And his, uh, you know, focus, and uh, Jay Bennett played a really, really big part in making it sound weird yeah. and be weird. Um, they, it just, you know, just, I mean, the fact that we recorded over 50 songs in the projects, you know, cause we were only supposed to record 15 it's such a fruitful collaboration. I mean, I, and I go back to that. I've got the first two CDs, but I go back to the third one as well. Yeah. And, you know, that beautiful arrangement of uh, When the Roses Bloom Again, mm-hmm. which I know is... Uh, the Carter family yeah. did that, didn't they? But but then that came out. Laura well, Cantrell is, did that. And This is the weird thing. When you're in the archive with Woody, you don't know what is something he wrote or something he picked up a fragment of. I think mm-hmm. Birds and Ships may be a fragment of something he picked up. Right. And he actually refers to... Uh, one of the songs, I think it might be Don't You Marry, has been a fragment of a much longer song. Hmm. One of them he refers to as, you know, so on one side, he's, oh, I tell you what, it's Black Wind Blowing. Oh, yeah. Black Wind Blowing, I think he's collected that. He's not written that. Um, but we couldn't find it anywhere in the archives. All we knew was it, it was a song from Texas. Hmm. And when Corey Harris came on the project, he's from Texas. And when I played mm. to him, he said to me, I've heard that song before, <laughs> which was like, whew, yeah, goes around, comes around. And I think that's the great thing about Dylan is that he equally has always been a borrower of, of styles and ideas and a curator of, of old material, a collector of, of songs that kind of feed into um, what, what he's doing. You know, before and since. I mean, it's, it's something that I think that goes right through his entire career. So it's no surprise that he's gone back to part of his own roots with the with the great American songbook stuff. Yeah. You know, because that's always to me that's always been there. You know, that sort of sense that it's a the, the culture that he's making is a once and future culture. Mm-hmm. It's not a moment. It's not a Shazam Woodstock. Wow, this is what it was like in the sixties. Jimi Hendrix. Wow. Mm-hmm. There's a continuum that flows through Dylan, you know, and at some sometimes it's really close at the surface, like you know, on John Wesley Hardy and stuff like. Other times you've got to dig down uh, to find it, but there's not many people that can do that thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, you know, he's the other side. If you want to place Woody, he's right in between Dylan and Walt Whitman. Yeah, you know, and if you want to place Dylan, he's in that. He's with Walt. He's closer to Walt, I think, than he is to say, you know, Ariana Grande. <laughs> no, seriously, <laughs> yeah. we're all in the same job. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I always explain this to people about what I do. You know, I'm closer to 
Max Miller than I am to Keith Richards. Yeah. Much as I love the Stones and I wish I could write them mm. kind of songs, I'm actually, on the scale of things, I'm up that end of the scale. Mm. And everybody fits in there somewhere. But Dylan very often ends up being one of the, one of the, the scales. And yet you go through your back catalogue and then, you know, I was, I was just, there's so many treats. There's, you know, there's the Flying Burrito Brothers in there and there's Woody yeah. Guthrie and there's Bruce Springsteen yeah. and it's all, it all blends together. Well, it's the Americana thing, isn't it? It's how you plug into that Americana thing. And, and I think Dylan's always been at the, at the centre of that. He's, you know, he, 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 find, he finds that after he comes off the motorbike, mm. you know. One minute he's in the 60s and the next minute he's in the 1860s, yeah. you know. And that's great, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. It, you know, I mean, that still resonates. You know, those those songs and what he did, that kind of back to basics thing. That's back to basics is what punk was all about. It's what Skiffle was all about. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you re, rejuvenate a stale culture? And and you know, Dylan had run out of road, mm. both metaphorically and literally. Yes. But you know that to, to be able to do that, um, to find a space for your uh, your muse in in that ground in that un, you know what up up until then pop was all about modernity mm. you know uh, suddenly he doubles back and 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 puts those deep roots down mm. and Americana kind of flows out of that. Have you ever you were talking about uh, you reusing stuff and Dylan reusing stuff? I think it was around Love and Theft that uh, it was discovered that he'd taken a chapter from this book about the Yakuza. I can't remember what song he he put it in. Uh, and have you ever done anything like that, or been tempted to do anything like that? I'm not saying it's a bad thing by any means. I think it's an interesting thing about well, recycling. Morrissey once said to me, "Talent borrows, genius steals." Mm. I think uh, you know. There's a lot of that in what Dylan does, but I'd I'd like to think of it more as repurposing mm. rather than than stealing or or taking. And if you can show bit show a bit of your workings, if you can let some of your roots hang and not worry about yeah. it, if you can put your let your Dylan references show, mm-hmm. so that for anyone who wants to to know can know, you know it's like the opening line of. Uh, of New England, my first song, my most famous song, mm. is a direct lift from a Simon and Garfunkel song. I was 21 yeah. years when I wrote this song. I'm 22 now. Yeah. I won't be for long, which is from the leaves that are green. Yeah. Anyone who knows that song <laughs> would, would spot that, but anyone who doesn't, it will pass them by. So I'm I'm yeah. down with that because I'm down, you know they're they're the cards I lay on the table. You want to see my cards? These are my cards. First song, first album. It's a riff on Shakespeare, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Absolutely. You know, that was my first my first breakup uh, song that I sent to a girl like when I was 16 and an idiot was a Leaves That Are Green. Well, well, it, it, it was the Leaves That Are Green turned to brown. You know? Yeah. Uh, no. Nope. No, not that. No, 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 you should have gone for uh, uh, something like um, Kathy's song. Or... Yeah, but that's a love song. Uh, Leaves That Are Green turned to brown. It means, babe, hey, it's been fun, but... Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> I know. Oh. I was an... Well, you know, I like to think I've grown a little... I've grown grown listening to that. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say if if somebody uh, asked you what uh, what if someone never heard of Dylan and and said you know what is quintessential Dylan? Where should I where should I start? I would say quintessential Dylan would be the guy alone on stage with the acoustic guitar and the jean jacket and the harmonica uh, on his on the the frame, telling his truth, whatever that truth is, and. you know, I, that's the kind of Dylan I grew up with. And in 1984, when the miners went on strike, I suddenly realised I was in a position to find out 
you know, whether or not music can change the world. Because mm-hmm. I'd sort of grown up with that belief because that's what they told us in the 1960s. I didn't still believe it by then because the, I think the, the clash had kind of pissed on the chips of that a bit, you know, by mm-hmm. um, turning it all into a bit of a pose. But the, for me, to be, to be able to go out there um, and, and do gigs for a cause and to, you know, to push it all the way to, to Red Wedge, you know, to set up a, a movement in support of electing the Labour government to defeat the Conservatives in 1987. I was kind of trying to see how far that would, you could go with that. This is my time. This is my generation. That's what they did. You know, the clash did what they did and that didn't work out. What did I learn from that? You know, the 60s, they did that and this was the result. What did I learn from that? Now it's my turn to, to have a go. And hopefully the next generation learns from you know, what what we were and weren't able to achieve. But we were still then, we were still riffing on the... Those ideas from the 1960s were still uh, viable within our culture at the time. Mm. I'm not sure they are anymore. I think some, as, there's been a real sea change in the way people use music in the sense that in the 20th century, mm. music really, although we didn't think of it in these terms, then music was our social medium. Yeah. You know, it's the way we spoke to one another, the way we spoke to our parents' generation, the way we defined ourselves. Music told us our address, it told us who to like, it told us who not to like. Um, and if you were 19, as I was uh, in 1977, and you were angry about the world and you wanted to be heard, the only medium available to you was to learn to play guitar, write songs and do gigs. Mm. As a result of that, you know, everything was channeled through... through uh, through pop culture, we had our own magazines in which we debated the issues of the day, and we we put our music out there, and which gave us a platform to discuss the issues we wanted to talk about. Now, if you're 19, there's so many different ways you have to to take part in the debate. I mean, you can make a film on your phone and edit it, and that's good because more more and more people get the opportunity to to um, to say their their you know. Their truth, but the problem is, it it's kind of music has lost its vanguard role in youth culture as a result of that. It still has an important role to play, but it's kind of been stripped back from that sort of frontline role mm. into a, into a more uh, emotional role now, which is really only a re- the revelation that the power that music has is not the power that we thought it had. The power of music in the 1960s, they thought, was that it could change the world. And you can understand why they thought that, because Elvis, in many ways, had changed their world culturally by bringing black and white youth together, mixing Mm. that culture. Mm. So you can Mm. understand why they might have thought that if we push this, we could change things politically. But Mm. we know, after what happened in 1968, that's not possible. Mm. And some people took that failure so uh, personally, it destroyed him. Phil Oakes, you know, hung himself in the end because he he didn't manage to change the world. The MC5 ended up, you know, in prison, drug addicts. You know, they were they they didn't understand that music can't change the world. Mm. But what it can do is it can make you feel as if you're not the only person in the world who cares about this thing, whether it's politics, emotional, whatever. The currency of music is empathy. You know, that's what's in the times that are changing in the album. Dylan's trying to get you to feel for things you've never personally experienced and people you've never met. 
to have empathy for those people. Mm. And that's, that's what music can do. Mm. And today we live in a time where, where there's almost like a war on empathy. Yeah. You know, anybody who expresses any compassion for anyone outside of their cultural, ethnic or social or gender group is immediately, you know, attacked and, and dismissed as politically correct or virtue signaling or whatever. And it, it's down to us, those of us who are making music to try and ramp up that, that empathy because it is the, the power that music has. You know, if you go to a gig and the person on stage wrote the song that you love the most and they're singing it and a thousand other people singing it and you're singing it, whatever emotion you've attached to that song this feels immediately accepted by everybody you know mm. and that sort of solidarity a solidarity song not in a political sense but in an emotional yeah. an emotional solidarity there's not many places you can get that maybe church mm-hmm. maybe at the football with everyone singing and, and cheering at the same time mm. you certainly can't get it online and I think that's why despite the fact music now is cheap as chips and you can get it everywhere for nothing people still want to go to gigs, they still want to go to festivals, they still want to see live music because you get something there. That is the power of music, the power of empathy, both for the subjects of the song but also empathy for the people in the room with you. Mm-hmm. And, you 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 know, when I go out on stage, what, what I'm doing is I'm laying out these ideas in my political songs and when everyone cheers, I feel that my activism gets recharged and my job is to try and make my audience feel the same way so I don't go away because the next night I'm going to be in another place yeah. laying that trip on another audience. They're still going to be there to deal with whatever problems they face in their environment and I want them to feel that there's a room full of people at least in their town that give a shit about this stuff mm. and that is the power that music can have. You know, And if you look back to what went on in the 60s, if you strip away the kind of going to change the world stuff, you see it's, it's the empathy. It's all those people standing in the field at Woodstock mm. You know, it's the crowd. It reminds me of the, the moment when, when Obama won the election in 2008 and he you know, quoted, a change is going to come, didn't he? Tell you what, I wept when me, he said that. Me too. I wept. Mm, I literally wept. I mean, I just off a plane from America and I was a bit jet-lagged, but I, I let out a yelp that my wife had gone to bed, came down to see if I was okay, and I was weeping on the sofa. Because it's that, by using that point of reference, mm. um, he's he's... Plugging into that great, all that struggle, and that's what the song. That's what song allows you to do. Yeah. You know, that's why the times are changing connects with my audience. When I sing it, when I sing those opening lines, they know this moment of solidarity is important to them. All right, I mess with the lyrics, but it, it heightens that. And then I bring it back at the end for the Dylan fans, and I can see the guys in the audience who are Dylan fans, and the girls in the audience who are Dylan fans. When I come back to that last verse, and they know that I'm not just riffing off with it, I'm not just you know discarded it, I'm still keeping within the canon. Um, these, these things, these small things are quite important. That quote from Obama, you know, respecting the material, yeah. not dissing the material, um, but goofing with it but you trying did, to take it forward, you know. Yeah, because I like the, I love your use of humour and also Dylan's use of humour. Yeah. Uh, and Woody's. Uh, and Woody's, yeah, yeah and it's tradition. so important to get the message across. I heard your version of uh, talking World War Three blues, which is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> well, thank you. Have you? I mean, it's it's wonderful. It's jaw dropping. Well, you've got to try and do something you know, different with it, aren't you? you yeah. Can't, you know, you, you've got to try and. I mean, it's kind of a. It's kind of a. Is it? I'm not quite sure what it is. <laughs> Hip hop, rap, Tom Waits. It's thing. kind of. It's kind of a sort of a, a kind of hip hop rap thing, but in a kind of weird Cockney accent, it's slightly sped up. And just kind of, you know, the the format of uh, Talking Blues, 
is yeah. a you know Dylan was plugging into a tradition that was already there. It's a long tradition, and you you can't just it's, it's not set in stone. No, you got to move move forward. You can it. you can sort of bring it back and mess it around and have and you ever done it live? No, it looks like it'd be impossible. I probably could I could probably do it if I could remember the lyrics. Isn't there a line? The, the, the original line is something like uh, "Yeah, I thought I was a communist or something," and you say "Thought I was a liberal Democrat." Yeah, yeah. You got you got you know you got to mess with with it, and uh, the times are all changing, so you have to lep it up and make it work like that. But yeah, he does. He looms large in my legend, Bob. You know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a hardcore kind of guy. I, you know, I recognise that it, some. You know, it, probably the last album of his I bought was Blood on the Tracks. Probably. Really? Yeah. This is going to be my question. So you've missed. There's there's a lot of good shit in there. You it's know, true. It's not all, but I was listening to Modern Times, which I know you love just love just today. Just, yeah. And it, it struck me almost like I hadn't heard it for uh, maybe a year, and. It's not that it's topical or anything. It's just that it. I thought, Christ, this is good. Mm. I don't know, but there's a, I remember hearing it when it came out in 2006 and thinking that the the doom in Ain't Talking just captured the mood, or or indeed of Nettie Moore captured yeah. the absolute mood of that era. And you know what? It probably applies now to who are we can. Yeah. Well, the poetry. The thing is, really good poetry. The, the poetry of Nettie Moore uh, is what jumped out yeah. at me. It, mm. It's uh, every it's now and then someone covers one of those songs and it really blows my mind and I think I must go and check out all that kind of stuff. Is it, isn't there one called uh, "Ain't Dark Yet"? Not not dark, not yet. dark, not dark yet. yet. Yeah, yeah. 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 I saw Robin Hitchcock sing that and I was like, wow, I'm going to have to go and check out this kind of stuff. But I think probably I'm sort of a bit stuck in uh, I'm stuck in uh, Highway 61 somewhere. That's kind of my go-to record now. No, it's my go-to record now these days when I'm driving. Yeah, I often chink that on. It's a really good nighttime driving album, and those those kind of um, more crazy records. Um, I've never really come to complete terms with Blonde on Blonde. Um, I don't know why. I Maybe mean, I think I, I got around that by uh, uh, listening to uh, uh, the. Greatest Hits Volume Two. Yeah, stuck inside a mobile. Yeah. So, do you, were, were they too? Was say Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands just too long, which it is for some people? Or I just don't think I ever bought it. <laughs> you mean you never? <laughs> be, you, you mean you literally didn't buy it, or you just, just didn't, didn't, buy didn't, it. didn't physically didn't buy <laughs> okay. it? I think it's that. But it's all over. You know, I mean, if you listen, you know, if you listen to Mermaid Avenue, uh, Walt Whitman's niece is yeah. Rainy Day Women. You know. Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah, what we, yeah. you know, exactly. Starting yeah. it with a with a, a pissed up, joke. yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah. we had to we had to set the bar yeah. for this. What what are you going to expect with Woody Guthrie? So Woody Guthrie record. Nora's problem was that everybody her her argument was that her father had been put on a pedestal, hmm. and was becoming a bit of a two dimensional character, and uh, he was actually an iconoclast. He needed to be knocked down because that's what he would do. So I thought, okay, we're going to open the album with a song where Woody and Two Sailors get drunk and go chasing Skirt, and that's going to set the tone. Yeah. This is the, this is where we are. Yeah. All right, we're not out in the dust bowl. No, uh, uh, you know, and we're not. This land is your land. He's lusting after Ingrid Bergman. That's right. Absolutely. He's, he's yeah. writing a masturbatory <laughs> metaphorical song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in which the volcano, everyone. yep, the <laughs> volcano is a, a metaphor for his manly tumescence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's going in a flying saucer. <laughs> That's hard rock. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yep. He's gonna. He's gonna. You know. He's gonna talk about all sorts of things and and try and you know bring bring some of the real man. I mean, if you think about it. There's 3,000 songs in there. He only recorded 10% of the songs he wrote. 
So, mm. you know, imagine, well, can you name any other, <laughs> any other great artist who we've only seen 10% of their output? Well, I know. You know we and, know and until, all of John Lennon's output. And until, until we hear all of Woody's lyrics, he still has things to say to us that well, will I be both baffling and annoying yeah. and, and challenging. I, and I had no idea until today that he'd recorded some of those songs because I, I put all you fascists into YouTube and it came up with his version. Not right. Well, not nobody, yeah, nobody knew that was out there because basically there's radio recordings that he did and it was only subsequently that we recorded those songs yeah. uh, because I was only relying on Nora. Yeah. And I would say, is this one recorded? And she'd say, no, because mm. I, I, I didn't know any better, you know. But it turns out that, that since we recorded Mermaid Avenue, some other recordings have reappeared, some mm. are radio sessions, some are... Uh, Someone rec- re- did a lo- re- recorded a live gig of his on a piece of fishing wire. Good God. Uh, which was all tangled up like that, and they untangled it, and they found a machine that would still play. It's the very earliest magnetic tape. It's a magnetic recording on a piece of fishing wire. Like, it's not really fishing wire, but it's like but yeah. fishing wire. Mm-hmm. And they, they, it was a live gig, him playing live. So that was uh, that was him singing in the wire. Well, literally. yeah, literally, yeah. Although it's not yeah. a huge amount of singing, mostly he's talking. It's a bit like me, actually, live. Yeah. You don't really play much, he kind of talks more. Because since the moment out, moment Avenue, I was, I was looking up, and I didn't realise that Nora had, had done a couple of other projects yep. with, with yep. some she, of the songs. Yeah, Del McCurry did an album. Yeah. Uh, the Klezmatics did an album, because there's a load of songs in there, uh, Jewish children's songs, mm-hmm. because um, his wife was Jewish, and his, his mother-in-law was a Yiddish poet whose name was... Uh, Eliza Greenblatt? Definitely Greenblatt, not sure mm. about the first name. And she lived at the far end of Mermaid Avenue. There was like a, a enclave, an artistic enclave, and she lived in there. And they kind of swapped songs. They would, she would write Dust Bowl poems, and he would write Yiddish Hanukkah songs. Mm-hmm. And they would swap songs. So there's a load of, load of Hanukkah stuff in there. Did you ever hear Lost on the River, the, uh, the T-Bone Burnett album of, of Bob Dylan's unpublished I lyrics? did hear it. I don't remember it, but yeah. yeah. It's just, it's a great idea for an album. You know, yeah. Find, find a trunk full of lyrics that don't have any tunes. And yeah. Give it to and yeah. No. And so long as you, I think, I think the, the thing, the thing is, I do remember what I thought about, right? and that was they were too respectful to the material. Right. You've got yeah. to get hold of it mm. and really give it a, a you know, mm. a, a real, throw it up against the wall, you know, and just yeah. let it do what it wants to do. I mean, you know, Walt Whitman's niece is a scurrilous tale, mm. the whole mm. thing. You know, I, I thought the um, the I, I don't know if it was a TV show first, but I've got the DVD of Man in the Sand. Thing. Yeah, it was a documentary. Yeah, TV yeah. documentary. Yeah, and I thought that was uh, terrific too because it didn't take you guys. You, rather, it, it it kind of pulled back the curtain a bit. Yeah, and showed disagreements yep. and and showed. I I love just the fact of, of seeing the studios and seeing just how scuzzy. Yeah, they, they certainly look yeah. scuzzy, um, and just. And and actually learning more about Woody, like I finally putting together his various marriages and yep. the third marriage which didn't yep. work, and uh, and I thought that was well, yeah, it was, was very a bit like human that myself. You know? I mean, when we when we um, when we started the project, I mean, I knew what he was and why he was important, but I didn't know the details of his life, and so I had to get Joe Klein's book, which is arguably the best of the Woody yeah, docos, yeah. Uh, Woody uh, biographies, because mm. he. When he wrote his book, the protagonist was still alive. Marjorie was still alive. His wife was still alive. And he spoke to a lot of people. Unfortunately, the biographers that have come since haven't had that, uh, uh, that opportunity, obviously. But um, so I had to kind of gen up a lot on that. And it was like going back to Scaduto because it was, a, it was really, you know, it, it taught me a huge amount about him. That's what Springsteen mentions when he does this at Land is Your Land, doesn't he? He says, I yeah. just read this book by this yeah. guy called Joe, Joe Klein. Klein. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good book. And Joe's a really political writer. 
Mm-hmm. So he did a great job on, on putting Woody in his proper context. Yeah, because yeah, he wrote uh, he wrote Primary Colors. He did, he? yeah. That's uh, his book, yeah. Uh, Clinton. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he wrote it anonymously, I think, first, yeah. wasn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, do you ever still read books about Bob Dylan? I do read books about Bob Dylan, but they're usually uh, about a specific type of Bob Dylan. If you know what I mean, I read, what was the book that was about uh, the Byers sisters and Bob and uh, what's his name, who married Mimi, Richard Farina? Oh yeah, there's a book about those four, yeah. isn't there? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it called possibly Fourth Street? Maybe it may well be. Yeah, yeah I, think. I read. Yeah. I kind of read that. There was a Woody Dylan and Springsteen book I read. Uh, yeah, I kind of dip in and out of those kind of things. Have you read any Michael Gray? No, I haven't read any Michael Gray. I, I, we did, for our sins, uh, Invisible Empire by Grail Marcus was quite influential, which came out just before we made Mermaid Avenue. Yeah. And we were all I, steep, yeah. we were all steeped <clears throat> in that. Mm. Which was, was initially called an Invisible Republic and then yeah. they changed it to the old Weird America. He did, yeah. yeah. He did for some yeah. reason, which I think, I don't know why that is. Invisible Republic is quite a good Great title. title. Yeah. yeah. He coined the phrase old Weird America in the book, he I did. think. Yeah. Which has he now did. come, you know, become parlance for, for that period. But I think really it's, you know, I start, I've started to hear things lately that I didn't used to hear. I was listening to something the other day and I could hear the buttons of his jean jacket tapping on the back of his guitar. Oh, the blood of the track, New York tapes. Yeah. No, no, it was something else. There's a lot, there's a lot well, of there's he, a lot apparently of had terrible microphone technique. Yeah. I, I've read yeah. in, in the, certainly, I think he probably all through his career, but I know the first few albums, they kept saying, Bob, you know, you're banging the yeah, microphone yeah, yeah. stand with your boot. Yeah. <laughs> Stop yeah. it. And he wouldn't because he couldn't just, care. he wouldn't or couldn't. <laughs> the thing yeah. is, I'd read about he'd done this, but I'd never noticed it before. So I think it may yeah. be that the stereo in my new car might be much better <laughs> than the stereo good. in my old car. Because yeah. I suddenly started thinking, is that... It is. I finally heard it. The the, the mystical. Thing. It might have been um, no reason to cry. Oh yeah. On those sessions, that's, sign language. That's a that. great it's, language of sandwich. I mean, yeah, as a songwriter, bakery and fakery. Like, oh, don't don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. Because they're song. so brilliant. You're Bob Dylan and you're rhyming language and sandwich. Oh, it's just to die for, isn't I know, it? I know. I know. And it's just oh. tossed off, isn't it? That song. You think Wait, there must be more like this. No, Come on, yeah. this is such fun. Just, but that's the way you do it. That's the way to write songs. Yeah. You don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, that's how Woody wrote Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. You know. Was that when when Ingrid Bergman was was that like on a crumpled piece of bit no, of paper? No, or, all were all these them. things in a one notebook? Or no, what no, they they're all on single like? sheets. They're not. They don't tend not to be in notebooks. They tend to be on single sheets, very often typed, because he right. he um, he did a correspondence course in typing, Woody. So he's a really good typist, very fast typist. And it's interesting in that Dylan, you know, I wonder yeah. if he went to visit Woody and said, so how do you write these songs? Yeah. No, they were, all, they were all typed up. And very often there will be some sort of notation at the bottom explaining why he wrote the song or what he was doing that day or how he felt about something. Wow. Almost like he just, it was in many ways, I mean, it sounds weird now, but in many ways it was like he was faxing us the songs from Lake yeah. Tahoe. It really was. He'd put a little note on the bottom about why he wrote this, you know, first heard this song, I mean, there's one song, I think it might be Don't You Marry, where he talks about learning it from when he was a soda hop in Texas in 1935 from a itinerant singer who used to wait outside and busk outside the, the soda joint that he played. And he learned it from him and he calls this itinerant singer in his little notes. He refers to him as Spider Finger. And as soon as I read that, 
I felt a chill go at the back of my yeah. spine because I thought of those photographs of Robert Johnson mm. with his incredibly long fingers. Mm. What he talks about, his fingers walking up and down the guitar. Field. And I had this kind of, because, you know, where was Robert Johnson in 1935? Was he in Texas? Who knows? I had this image of Robert Johnson and Woody Guthrie in a soda joint as kind of young men. So that's yeah, the, that's the old that's the old weird America. Yeah. yeah, that's the old weird America. And and for all the talk about it in 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 Invisible Republic, the, the in the archive, the paper, the words, the context, it was we were right in it. We weren't yeah. we weren't evoking it. We were in it. Mm. You know, these were the words of a man who was channeling this deep deep stuff from the from the 1930s and the 1940s and towards the end of his life as his handwriting starts to go and uh you know in the period where where bob visited him he was still writing mm. what initially you think is kids scrawl around the lyrics you look closely and you see actually there are words there it's woody's late handwriting going around the edge writing stuff in big letters and one one of the um, lyrics was just, oh, God, 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 oh, God. And just the whole page. And me and Jeff, he was there, and we both looked at it, and we thought, you know, that's Woody going down. And Nora was like, don't be so patronising. It might be, oh, God, oh, God. It might be revelatory. And we realised that we were inferring our own meanings to these songs and we shouldn't be we should just be letting them go free they're Woody's words they're not our words just our job was to come in and take these masterpieces and put a new frame on them so they could be put on display so everyone could come and admire them let's not worry about context I mean you know what's the content of California stars nothing but people mm. love it. People mm. love it everywhere, you know. And it's just because we took that at face value. There's a song just about what it is about. Put it up there. Put a nice tune on it. Three chords, bang. And that's how the greatest songs get written. That's the essence of of reaching into that. I think it's what Woody did. I think it's what Bob did. And it's what I aim to do every time I write a song. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Donald White Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare. I'm the oldest son of a crazy man. I'm in a cowboy band. Got a pile of sins to pay for and I ain't got time to hide. I'd walk through a blazing fire, baby, if I knew you was on the other side.